May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Delft is a city of accomplishments. You just look around. Uh, there have been there have been so many accomplishments from the people here in Delft, all down through the ages, and even today, with with the university here, there are so many people that that have have studied, that are teaching, and and, and this sort of accomplishment really takes a dream. It takes people dreaming of accomplishing a goal. And when you accomplish, want to accomplish a goal like that, you make plans. And you begin to work on those plans. Uh, if Those of you who have PhDs or are working on them or, or maybe another degree, you know that it takes persistence. You have to keep working at it. Why? Because as soon as you begin to try to accomplish those goals, there are complications. Complications. And you could quit, or you can persist and accomplish what you dream of doing. Well, what about God? God makes plans as well. And God had a plan for mankind. His plan from the very beginning, from the very first chapter of Genesis, was that he was creating mankind in his image and that that they were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And it was for God's goal. His goal was that these people who bear his image would fill the earth with his glory. And it was a good plan. No, it was, it was a good, good plan, a very good plan. And it got complicated, complicated by sin the sin of mankind. And God persisted in, in this plan. When, when mankind sinned, when they, when they fell uh, into, into sin, he continued, he persisted in, uh, in, this, in this plan. So as Ilias has mentioned, we're going to start a, a series today, four sermons on the last section of Genesis. Uh, that section, it runs from chapter 37 to the end. Uh, but we're not going to be able to finish all of that in four Sundays. So I'm uh, hoping to go through chapters 37 through 40. But this section is often called the Joseph story. But maybe better would be the generations of Jacob. Uh, you see... The book of Genesis gives the building blocks of God's plan. Ten building blocks. They're they're called the generations of. The book of Genesis is is broken down into into ten blocks, building blocks of of this plan. 
and it, it goes, these are generally, these are the generations of, and then it follows with a story. And this one, from chapter 37, is the tenth and final building block in, in Genesis, the uh, building block uh, of God's restoration plan. Now, generations in, uh, uh, in the Hebrew, the word they use is toledot, which means generations. Um, and uh, it's sort of a story of descendants. And some of them have a genealogy. Uh, and some of them at the very beginning. And today, we're not going to see a genealogy. That will come later in the, uh, in the, in the story. But it will be a story of family. It's a family story. And, you know, families, Ilias mentioned in the prayer, he mentioned about families. And families are really a gift of God. Uh, and, and he promised through Abraham, he said, through you, all the families on earth will be blessed. Families are wonderful. But families also have complications, don't they? Sometimes families are a little on the messy side. You know, families are a blessing. Families come from God. But sometimes families uh, have complications. And here, in this final building block of God's plan in Genesis, we're going to look as God has narrowed down his rescue plan here to, to one chosen covenant family of, of God, the family of Jacob. You know, the Old Testament is full of awkward, surprising, sometimes downright embarrassing stories. But you know, they are like presents. They are, they are gospel gifts of grace, just waiting to be unwrapped. And so almost as the more difficult the story is, the more embarrassing it might seem to be on the outside. When you unwrap them, you begin to see the grace of God at work. And that is the gospel. Now this story is a story of reconciliation, and it's also a story of the providence of God, the hidden hand of God at work among his people. So reconciliation and providence are going to filter all the way through this final section. But today, as I read chapter 37, and it's a long chapter, but I'm going to read all of it, I, wa I want us to focus on three themes or three motifs Kinship, or family, clothing, or garments, and dreams. Once again, kinship, clothing, and dreams. And as I read through this, think about those three themes. Focus on them. I will probably stop a time or two and, and look at a couple of other things as I read this. Uh, but keep those three themes in mind. And I'm going to pick up from verse 2 in chapter 37. These are the generations of Jacob. 
Joseph, a 17-year-old son, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Billa and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's <clears throat> wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Jesus loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a long-sleeved tunic. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully with him. Now, Joseph dreamed a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Now I'm going to pause for a moment. Shechem, this is where Jacob had bought a field. And undoubtedly, the brothers went to this field to pasture um, the, the, the flock. And, uh, and so that's where uh, Joseph is going to be going. And can you imagine that last morning? I'm sure he left in the morning. All journeys begin in the morning, really. And can you imagine Joseph with that long sleeve to- uh, tunic walking from the Valley of Hebron? And can you imagine... Can you imagine him going over the next hill and disappearing behind that hill? And Jacob did not lay eyes on Joseph for more than 20 years. For more than 20 years, Jacob thought his beloved son, Joseph, was dead. Can you imagine that? And a man found him wandering in the field. And the man said to him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they are pasturing the flock? And the man said, they've gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. 
Do you see the providence of God here? Do you see it? Now, some, some people look at this and they say, oh, this must have been an angel that redirected Joseph toward his brothers. Maybe even a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of the Lord himself, as some have, have thought. But the text just simply says it was a man that redirected it. And you, can you see the providence of God? Jacob thought he sent him to the, his brothers, and he did. But if that man had not been there and seen him wandering in that field, he might have returned home. But that was not God's plan. His plan was not that Jacob or, or Joseph would go to Shechem and return. His plan included something much more. I'll pick up from verse 18. They saw him from afar, that is his brothers, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Behold, Lord of the dreams is coming. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has destroyed him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he, that is Reuben, might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his tunic, the long-sleeved tunic that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took him, Joseph, to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. Then he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the long-sleeved tunic and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's tunic or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's tunic. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. 
All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him to Egypt, in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Imagine Egypt. That's where most of the rest of the story of this last generation will take place. Egypt was a land that was preoccupied with death and the afterlife. That's undoubtedly why this caravan was going down there with gum, balm, and myrrh. Those were used in the embalming of bodies that had died, they expecting that that would give new life after death. So can you imagine that, more, that last morning that Joseph was wearing this long-sleeved tunic, and I'll explain that a little bit later, and he was stripped of that. And I can imagine those long arms of Joseph being bound and being carried off, dragged off to Egypt with the smell of the balm and the myrrh and the gum, the smell of death going down into Egypt. And notice what the writer here of the story, of the narrative is doing. Jacob thinks he's gone down to Sheol, which is the land of the dead. He's actually gone down to the land of Egypt, which, for the people of God, will be the land of protection, the land where they will, they will have life. So Joseph, you know, his arms bound, and he's bound for Egypt with the smell of death. You, know, you, can, you can almost smell it. Well, Let's look then at those three themes. Remember, kinship, clothing, and dreams. Kinship and family. Uh, as I mentioned, this is called a toledot. Uh, there will be a genealogy of this family in chapter 46, but we won't, we won't look at that in this series. But did you notice how chapter 37 is just filled? It's flooded with uh, family terms, father, son, mother, daughter, brother. You, I counted 42 times in just this one chapter these family terms. This is a story of family. Now, a lot of people call it the Joseph story, and in a certain sense you might say that, uh, but it's really the story of Jacob, Jacob's family. If there is a Joseph story, though, if you want to think of there being a Joseph story, then it begins in verse 12 when, when Jacob sends Joseph off to Shechem. Uh, but the story doesn't even end at the end of Genesis. Joseph dies at the end of uh, Genesis, 
110 years old. And he makes his brothers promise that they will carry his bones back up to the land when the Lord comes to visit again. And, and you can see that that is a symbol of, of uh, reconciliation. And so, yes, if you, if you look in, in, the, in the book of Exodus, yes, indeed, those, those bones were picked up and they were carried off when the people of Israel went off to the promised land. Hundreds of years later. And it didn't even end there. They went further and conquered the land. And if you, if you look at the end of the book of, of Joshua, those bones were laid to rest in the field in Shechem that his father Jacob had purchased. So the Joseph story, if you want to think of it that way, kind of begins in verse 12 here in chapter 37, and it doesn't, it doesn't end, in a sense, until the end of the book of Joshua, hundreds of years later. By the way, Joseph's tomb is a matter of conflict. There is a place uh, near Shechem that has what is called the tomb of Joseph, and all down through the ages, it has been the source of conflict. Conflict. In the early church, the early church wanted to lay claim to that, and the Samaritan says, no, 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 these belong to us. And so even the early church struggled and fought with the Samaritans over the tomb bones of Joseph. Even, even as recently as 10 or 15 years ago, uh, it, you, no one could even visit it because, because it was a, a source of conflict. And even today, it's a, it's a source of conflict. And so you can see that there are people who, who look uh, back to Abraham as their father, in a sense, and, and there's still need for reconciliation. It's, reconciliation is still a work uh, in progress. But this family of Jacob, they are to be, according to one Old Testament scholar, a man named uh, Jason, Jason DeRauschi, he says that, that these people are to be divine image bearers of God, reflecting, resembling, and representing their heavenly Father to his glory. Again, divine image bearers of God, reflecting, resembling, and representing their heavenly Father. But just look at them. They are a pack of schemers, scoundrels, and scalawags. Now, maybe, maybe some of you don't know the word scalawag. It's, a, it's an old uh, American English term that goes back to the 1800s. 
And I looked up in a dictionary uh, what a scalawag is so I could give you a dictionary definition of scalawag. And what I found was that uh, they were reprobates, rascals, or rogues. And that seems to fit this family. Reprobate, rascals, and rogues. Now, when I say reprobate, I don't mean that in the hardwired theological sense. That's a theological category of people, and that's not what's meant here. It's meant nasty rogues, and it's a family of them. And it's not just Jacob's family. It goes further back. This scalawag gene was always there. You might say, isn't that kind of harsh? I mean, what about Abraham? Wasn't Abraham, you know, the, the model of faith in God? You know, he, he's, he's called a hero of the faith, the writer of Hebrews says. And that's true. He was. But you know, he was also a scalawag. He was, he was a serial liar and deceiver. You say, Abraham, what do you mean? Well, this is what I mean, is you know when he was going on down to Egypt uh, because of famine in the land? He says, he says to Sarah, he says, he says uh, when we get down there, uh, you tell him you're my sister. Why? Because Abraham was afraid for his own life. So he didn't mind letting Sarah be endangered. So Sarah's my sister. Well, when Pharaoh finds out about it, he deports the whole family. Get out. But that wasn't the only time he did this. Later on, later on, Abraham pulls off the same stunt with Abimelech. Sarah is my sister. Well, Abimelech catches him and says, you know, what is this you have done? And, uh, and, and Abraham says, oh yeah, uh, I, uh, ever since we came into the land, everywhere we go, I have been telling this story. At least he admitted it to Abimelech, but that means that he undoubtedly had told this story, Sarah is my sister, many times. Now, that doesn't mean that Abraham was not a model of faith. But it took God to, to, to mend him, to mold him, and to make him this model. Once again, God's work on display. That's the gospel. So you look at this family of Jacob... Uh, and someone is going to have to roll up their sleeves and get to work on this pack of scalawags. And that someone is God himself. Rolling up the sleeves, that brings us to the second theme, the second motif, and that is of clothing. And clothing, clothing has, is a symbol, uh, particularly in the Bible. Anytime there's a change in clothing... That means there's a change in status. And in this case, the status that is at play with this tunic is who is going to get the 
blessing of the firstborn. Who is going to be the firstborn and get that blessing? Now, Reuben was actually the chronologically firstborn. And uh, ordinarily, that's who would get the firstborn's blessing, was the firstborn chronologically. But not always. Sometimes in the ancient Near East, someone other than the first would, would actually get that blessing. And that's what's undoubtedly at play here. Because Reuben, another one of these scalawags, and another one of those embarrassing stories, because Reuben sleeps with Billa, his father's uh, concubine, actually the handmaid of uh, Rachel, his beloved wife. And can you, can you imagine this family? Reuben sleeping with Billa, who is the mother of Dan and Naphtali? Can you imagine what Dan and Naphtali must have thought of their older brother Reuben sleeping with their mother? Pack of scalawags. Pack of scalawags. So who's going, to get the, who's going to get the blessing and birthright of the firstborn? Well, this tunic is a sign. It was a special tunic. Ketonet pasim is what it is in Hebrew, and no one really knows what a ketonet pasim was. Now, traditionally, our Bibles have translated it something like a coat of many colors, and that's possible, and they take that from an ancient translation of the, uh, of the chapter that called it a coat of many colors or something like that. Uh, but that was probably just a guess because that, was, that translation took place hundreds of years after the original was written. Uh, others have said that it was uh, a, a, a decorated coat or tunic. Uh, and that could include colors, of course. But some think, and, and this is where I stand, is they think that it was a, a, a tunic with long sleeves. With long sleeves. And that's, I can't prove it, but I like that idea. A coat, a tunic of long sleeves. Because, you know, when you go to work, you don't have sleeves on your arms usually. And in fact, in the English, we have that, you have that expression, to roll up your sleeves. And that means I'm going to get to work. I think there's a Dutch expression, say, uh, handen out the mouwen, is it? Something like that. It, and it means, it means get to work. And so here's, here is uh, Joseph, and he's wearing this <sighs> coat with long sleeves. So he undoubtedly was the one that was destined to get the double portion of the firstborn. At least his brothers see it that way. And so they, they originally they plot to kill him. And then they decide, no, no, let's, let's not, uh, he's our brother, let's not kill him, let's just send him off into slavery. So what do they do? They strip him. They sell him into slavery, or they plot to, 
and plot to stain this garment, rip it, and deceive their father. Deceiving scalawags. But you know, do you notice there's a pattern here? There's a pattern. Jacob did the same thing, almost. Jacob deceived his father in order to get the blessing from Isaac. And how did he do it? He put his brother's clothes on. They slaughtered a goat, cooked it to make a a meal that would deceive Father Isaac. And then he put the skin of the goats on his arms so that he would feel like he was the hairy brother Esau. It's not the only time that sort of thing happens. Next week, we're going to look at the story of Judah and Tamar. (laughs) And there again, Tamar, she puts on the clothing of a prostitute and then hires herself out to Judah for the price of a goat. There's a pattern. There's a pattern. In a couple of weeks, we're going to see we're going to see a garment come up again because because Potiphar's wife is going to grab that garment uh, uh, off of Joseph. So it's a pattern. But whatever the katonet pasim, this tunic was, Joseph could be seen from afar. And then his brothers mock him. Behold, Lord of the dreams is coming. You can see they, 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 they don't believe him. They don't believe him. Lord of the dreams. And dreams is that third motif that I asked us to, uh, to focus in on. And it's a major motif in this whole story. Three times there will be double dreams. Here in 37. Then, then later on in, in chapter 40 with the... Uh, uh, in prison, and then, then later on with Pharaoh. Double dreams, and an additional dream, v- night visions that Jacob will have much later in the, in the, in the story. And these, the dreams in chapter 37 suggest that Joseph is going to be chief of the clan and reign and rule. That's what they tend to suggest. Did their brothers actually believe? I don't think so. I don't think they believed that those dreams were real. Imagine, imagine a 17-year-old boy strutting around <coughs> with this coat with long sleeves, the symbol and sign of being the firstborn. Can you imagine that? Now, I, I, I don't have anything against 17-year-old boys. Uh, I was one once myself. And if only, I, if only I knew at 17 what I know now at 70. So I, I know what 17-year-old boys, are, fellows, are like. Uh, and many of them are destined to be like Joseph, who was, who was a man of upright character, eventually. But here, I think his brothers are assuming that he is a scalawag just like they are. I think he was. 
I think Joseph might have been a little bit full of himself. Look at me. I'm, I'm going to be ruler of the clan. The brothers say, are you indeed to rule over us? Are you indeed to reign over us? You can, you, that expression in the, in the Hebrew is, gives kind of this uh, incredulity, this we don't believe it sort of feel about it. Um, and so I don't think they actually believed it, but I think they interpreted the dreams that Joseph thought that he was going to be the ruler of the clan. And I think Joseph thought so too. Uh, we know differently though, I think. We know the dreams were real. The writer of the story tells us that they were real. It was real it was, they were real dreams. But it's the matter of the interpretation. Later on, Joseph is going to say that uh, in, interpretation belongs to the Lord. But that was going to be years later, after 10 years. Was he going to be king? Was he going to be leader over his family? Well, he was going to, he was going to be a protector of his family. He was never going to be king. And so Joseph, I think, misinterpreted those dreams. I think later on he realized how to interpret those dreams. Because Joseph was on his way to being something more important than an earthly king. He was becoming a divine image bearer, reflecting, resembling, and representing God and filling the earth with his glory. He was there to protect and provide for this covenant family of God. Well, I've taken a lot of time, but let's, get, let's come down to a conclusion in this, in this story. How then do we interpret this whole chapter? Well, we have the Holy Spirit, for one, and that would be one uh, key way for us to begin to interpret it. But we also have uh, a rascally guy that was a tax collector, who was a friend of sinners and scalawags, Matthew. Former tax collector, disciple, and finally apostle who writes the final the final generation. He begins his, his gospel, the book of the Toledot, or generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Peretz and Zerah by Tamar. <laughs> See, in place of a goat... She gets a place in the Toledot. And then so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, and so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, and he keeps on going. Eliezer, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob. And then verse 16, notice this. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. 
Jacob, the father of Joseph. And this Joseph dreamed a dream. And behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So this Joseph, son of David... He was of the Davidic line, but he was not going to be king, nor was he going to be Messiah. Instead, he was God's chosen instrument to protect and provide for the real king, the real Messiah. And then it says, Joseph dreamed another dream and brought Jesus down to Egypt for protection from King Herod. And no doubt... When they went down to Egypt, they were carrying with them the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh that the wise men of the East had given as gifts. And behold, Joseph dreamed another dream and returned to Israel with Mary and Jesus after Herod's death. And behold, a fourth time, Joseph dreamed a dream and brought Jesus to Nazareth in Galilee. And 30 years later, roughly, from Galilee, this Jesus began to preach the kingdom, his kingdom. And this Jesus, beloved son of God the Father, was sent not to Shechem, but to a place called Golgotha, And the elders and the chief priests laid hands on him. And soldiers mocked, not with, behold, Lord of the dreams, but hail, King of the Jews. And they stripped him of his robe that he wore, and with outstretched arms they nailed him to a cross. And thus, yielding up his spirit... Jesus died. (laughs) And then notice this. And a man named Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus and clothed him in a clean linen shroud and laid him in his own tomb. In his own tomb. All of the Gospels mention the story of Joseph of Arimathea. Matthew says that Joseph of Arimathea owned that tomb. In a sense, Jesus was buried in Joseph's tomb. But in this tomb of Joseph, there are no bones. It's empty. Jesus is not there, for he has risen. And then the result of Jesus' work with outstretched arms nailed to the cross is that he saved us from our sins. The result of Jesus' work with outstretched arms nailed to the cross is that we here in ICF can be mended, molded, and made to be divine image bearers reflecting resembling and representing our Heavenly Father to all the families 
of the earth, that they too would be blessed. The result of Jesus' work with outstretched arms nailed to the cross is that we are reconciled one to another and with God. So that, like the songwriter, we can say to Jesus, you're my friend and you are my brother, even though you are a king. I love you more than any other, so much more than anything. So Matthew writes that final Toledot, that final generation block. For those of us in Christ, this is our Toledot. This is where we belong. This is our genealogy. Genesis, as I said before, had these ten building blocks of God's plan. And this is like the capstone on that plan. It's the capstone on it. And Matthew concludes his gospel with this. And Jesus came and said to them, these image bearers of, of, of God, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the capstone. That's us. That's us. But if you are hearing this message and you have never put your trust in Jesus, come. In faith, join this pack of former scalawags that we call the church because those outstretched arms of Jesus are waiting to embrace you. Come. He has done it. With outstretched arms, he has done the work. It is finished. Amen.